This is Brent Skousen, youngest son of W. Cleon Skousen. Thank you for tuning in today to another lesson taught by W. Cleon Skousen. Today's lecture is number 31 on the Old Testament, given in 1973 to his university class. It is unscripted and unedited. The text used today is from the Bible, 2 Samuel chapters 15 through 24, also 1 Kings chapters 1 through 3, and 1 Chronicles chapters 28 and 29, all supplemented by Dr. Skousen's book, The 4,000 Years, which can be found online, or if you prefer to listen to the book, check it out at audible.com. Today we cover chapters 7 and 8, the closing years of David and the rise of his son, Solomon. Now sit back and join us in the classroom of W. Cleon Skousen. Enjoy! Alright, now <clears throat> just a couple of points here. We ended up, I think, with Sheba. Didn't we get Sheba, or, or didn't we quite get that far? Why did David choose um, to go over in the direction of... Uh, Mahanaim, which was the former capital of the northern tribes after the fall of Saul. Why did he go clear across the river Jordan and on up into that territory? If he's going to flee, why did he flee there? Did he have anything in mind? What was the advantage of going up in that area? He needed time and he needed to rally what? What forces were up there that might give him some help? No, there were no Ephraimites there, but our brothers, the... Uh, Manassehites were there, <clears throat> one of the two of the other tribes, the only ones who had not rebelled. They're the only ones who had not rebelled. So it gave him a chance to gather them around and um, give them a chance to get a little time. Now you remember that uh, right off, um, the suggestion, of course, was that Absalom follow his father or, or, or allow Hithophel to follow him and kill him right now while he's depressed and fleeing and has no allies. Good old Hushai came in there and said, no, you take credit for it. Just have a good rest and then you go down and you have the honor of killing your own father. And did Absalom like that? Oh, he said, now there's a man. He has me in mind. He said, always has my interest at heart. And uh, Ahithophel could see exactly what was happening. So he went to Judah, put his house in order, and then what did he do? He hanged himself. So in due time, sure enough, um, uh, Absalom put his troops, all of the northern tribes, all of our apostate ancestors were mobilized together. And they went up and crossed the River Jordan at the, at the fords. <coughs> we assume because of the way the battle lined up, we have it uh, like so. There are fords right here. Mount Carmel... Mount Gilboa, where Saul uh, was committed suicide, and the forge is right here, Nab is right there. And uh, Mahanaim is over here, which is the capital, and the forest of Ephraim, so to speak, is about right in here. So actually, the battle is fought up in this general direction. And before the troops went out, why? David gathered them together and gave them specific instructions not to do what? Don't kill Absalom. When you get him, don't don't kill him. Try right to, you know, put him down. So it says that during this battle, David's men, after all, he had the Gibrim with him. He had the famous 600. I mean, these, these people taking on giants and everything else. These are real, these are real warriors. And they go in there with a terrific spree de corps. This is the 
um, the Marine Corps, you see, of David's forces, and and they go in there with real power. And so um, Amasa and the ten tribes collapsed, and Absalom fled with everybody else. So it says that day, what devoured more than the sword? The woods devoured more than the sword, meaning they did what? They went A-W-O-L. Yeah, they took off. And even Absalom fled after he saw everybody fled, and he had the, the disadvantage of a long hairdo. And uh, with his white mule going uh, underneath the brush and the bushes, and this was an oak forest, and uh, if, if you get in oak, as particularly older oaks like Sherwood Forest in England or something, um, those branches are extremely thick and gnarled. And he got himself in a predicament where this bob of hair of his not only snagged in the trees and pulled him off the mule, but it's long enough so that it holds him. And here he is. He can't touch the ground. He can't reach the limbs. And he's hanging by his hair, which hurts. So he's screaming bloody murder. And um, a soldier comes along and takes one good look and says, my goodness, it's Absalom himself. And so he runs and tells um, who? Joab. And Joab uh, says, that's nice, didn't he? Oh, what did he say? Why didn't you kill him? And the soldier says, because the king said under no circumstance we were to kill him. And here's old Joab, grabbing sword, grabbing javelins, and he goes over there. It's kind of interesting. And so he just has target practice, one right after the other, and puts them all into him. Boy, he, he was mad at that boy. And he really took care of him. And then what did he do with the tree? After he's got him dead, what did he do with the tree? Yeah, they cut him down, cut it down. That's very often the case, as a matter of fact. When they would hang a person, they would cut the tree down, too. Then what did they do with the body? They just uh, took the body back to town, did they? No. They dug a big hole, buried the body in, and what they stack on top? Rocks. So, um, Joab, that's, that job is done. Here's this, this old, flea-bitten, woe-begotten, scarred old warrior, a uh, little bit younger than David, but uh, he'd really been in the thick of it all his life. He's committed one murder. He's about to commit another one. Who'd he kill? Abner. Murdered Abner in cold blood. And um, so he goes back. The troops have all gone home. He's one of the last to leave the battlefield. He goes straggling into town. And lo and behold, the whole city's in mourning. And he goes up to the soldiers and says, what's the problem? Thought you'd all be celebrating. Oh, they said, the king is so angry and unhappy. And I think that that is really interesting where he goes storming into David. And the speech that he gave David uh, was something to, to be remembered. As a matter of fact, David never forgave him for it. Uh, <clears throat> but he says... Thou hast shamed this day the faces of all thy servants, which this day have saved thy life and the lives of thy sons and all thy daughters and the lives of thy wives and the lives of thy concubines, in that thou lovest thine enemies, hatest thy friends. For this day I perceive that if Absalom had lived and all we had died this day, it would have pleased thee well. You know, he's really upset. Now he says, look, get up, go forth and speak comfortably unto thy servants. For I swear by the Lord, if thou go not forth, there will not tarry one of us with thee this night. And that will be worse unto thee than all the evil that befell thee from thy youth until now. 
We'll just abandon you. So David aroused himself and he went out and said, everybody, cheers, cheers. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Appreciate the effort and so forth. But oh, Absalom, my Absalom. And um, so then they, they make their way back down to the river to, on their way to go home. And that, that was kind of an interesting thing. They barely get down to the fords uh, near the uh, Jabbok River. And they get down there and get ready to cross. And um, lo and behold, here comes um, Ziba and Shimea. And they've all, they, they want to make their peace <laughs> with the winner. Uh, this thing isn't turning out according to the script. In any event, they come and make their peace. But it's, it's, next the thing is that is fascinating. You've got all these people who were just fighting against King David, now fighting over who gets to lead the parade back to Jerusalem. And you had our ancestors being out-talked by whom? By Judah. <laughs> Here they got this big yak fest going on. And, and the Bible's very explicit as who, who talked the loudest and, uh, and uh, won the argument. So one of our uh, tribesmen from the ten tribes, he says, what have we to do with David anyway? So he is Jewish, so he belongs to the tribe of Judah, so let him have him to your tents, O Israel. What did that mean? To your tents, O Israel. Yeah, well, it meant to go home in a sense, and it also meant war. That is, it meant resistance. To your tents, O Israel. And so it, it indicated going back to their own territory, but it also meant cutting themselves off of David. You had a division of the kingdom. Now, David himself tried to reconcile the forces by appointing whom his commander-in-chief in place of Joab? Amasa, or Amasa, the very person who had led the forces against him. And that really was an insult to Joab, and I, you can understand that. See, there, you can't divide him up into good guys and the bad guys at this point. Everybody's fouling up right and left, just like us human beings often do. So um, we end up with uh, poor old Joab going back to Jerusalem uh, without any authority whatsoever. But this man that yelled to your tents, O Israel, and he was out to lead a rebellion, a real forceful rebellion, he was named what? Sheba, so that's easy one to remember. So David said, now look, we're going to have real trouble here. So, uh, Amasa, you go down to Judah and get our tribe and get them mobilized and go up and, get, and take Sheba before he gets everybody agitated into a great insurrection. So what happened when Amasa got down among the Jews? They, they didn't rally right away, did they? No, they're not for going to war right away. It's taking them a while. So after three days, David got unhappy and um, he sent um, Joab's younger brother. What was his name? Abishai, that's right. And uh, so Abishai gets all of the forces together that are immediately available, gets the Giborim, and that's the 600 you're seeing, that's the royal guard, and starts out. And he tells his older brother, he says, come on, we're going. And here's poor Joab in his robe. He's got no armor, he's got nothing, but he has time to grab his buckler, fastens that around his robe, it says, and he's got his sword, and he's got his belt, and, and he comes, boy's not going to miss this fight, and he comes storming out, and they're all walking on foot, and they get just up above Jerusalem when Amasa and his Jewish uh, cohort uh, come storming in from Judah, which is just south of Jerusalem, of course. In fact, Jerusalem itself is in Judah. Fairly rough up there. <coughs> Amasa arrives 
with his um, contingent. He's ready to take over. And Abishai uh, sees him coming, and they kind of stop their troops there. And old Joab, uh, this is really something. In his excitement to get over to Amasa, he apparently leaned over, and, and uh, in the process, out came his sword, came right out and just went clanking down on the sidewalk right in front of Amasa. And you don't know whether he was rushing over to say something to him or, or what, but anyway, his sword fell out. So it wasn't very securely, and maybe it wasn't even in a scabbard. It might just have been in the belt. But anyway, it fell out. Went clattering on the sidewalk, or on the pavement. And you've got Joab leaning down to pick it up. And as he comes up and he says, And how are you, my brother? <laughs> and right up the thoracic cavity. So down goes uh, uh, Amasa. And then one of the Giborim, one of the soldiers there, raised his sword and said, everybody for Joab and for David the king, go, go, go. So old Joab gets in front again and he takes off and his younger brother Abishai turns it over to him. So they go clear up. They, they get way up in this territory above Galilee, chasing Sheba. And uh, he's a fugitive now. They're right behind him and he finally holds up in one of the cities up there with a wall around it. Did you have your hand up? Well, this man was a traitor, you see. He, as far as Joab was concerned, here was a man. He risked his life over and over again to save the life of King David. And if King David is stupid enough to make Amasa his commander-in-chief after the man's been a traitor and a spy, and he's going to fix him. Right? And he did. Okay. He justified it in his own mind. As far as he was concerned, it was just a man-to-man situation and he was going to take care of it he gets up to this city and uh, is storming it and he can't they can't break into the city so they decide to <clears throat> build a ramp up and it's obviously in due time they'll be able to get in they'll break it down so the president of the relief society she said this is just ridiculous and she so she makes contact with joab and says what are you trying to do get us all killed what do you enjoy shedding blood is this what this is all about you're coming in here to kill men women and children no, Joab said, I want Sheba, but I want Sheba. Well, she says, if that's all you want, we'll get him for you. Relax. And so the next thing they know, why they get a package over the wall. What is it? Sheba's head. They buried the body inside, but that was just enough to let Joab know it's all right. So he goes back and reports back to David. That must have been an interesting thing as Joab marches in with probably Sheba's head. Says, we got him. Meanwhile, they buried Amasa. That must have really been a confrontation as David looked at this old scarred-up warrior and comrade-in-arms, his own nephew. Did he ball him out? Did he tell him he did a great job? Did he say much of anything? Just accepted the reality of it. They both went their ways. As far as the record's concerned, they, David was just saying, well... Yes, he's commander-in-chief again. <laughs> he took over. Well, uh, it's, it's a fascinating life. I've lived in Washington long enough, and I've been around people in power long enough to know that they don't, they don't act like normal human beings. If you read the history of kings, don't expect, it to, to be, don't expect kings and queens to, to behave normally. They don't. They got so much power, and they have so much worry and so much responsibility they react very often in peculiar ways. And I notice that even the Lord is quite 
tolerant of, of people who are in these terrible positions of responsibility. I've, I've observed that, that even he's kind of patient with them. But um, sometimes people have more responsibility than human beings were built to, to have. But this is the history of kings, and those that are in the high courts, they do some, some insane things. Well, it wasn't very long after that that we had this famous three years of famine. And when they found out what had caused it, what was it? Yeah, the slaying of the Gibeonites. And uh, there wasn't going to be, uh, they had to reconcile themselves with the Gibeonites. What did the Gibeonites demand? That those who had participated uh, in, in Saul's family, uh, who had participated in this whole thing, that their lives be sacrificed in the interest of justice because of the lives and the blood they'd shed. So you have that sorrowful scene where um, they are executed and at the, and the bodies were required to lie out in the elements till the rain came. And, and it wasn't the season for the rain, so they were out there for a while. And so to the place where the bodies lay came Rizpah, mother of two of the men who placed sackcloth on a rock for a bed and watched day and night over the bodies to keep, keep away the animals and vultures until the rains finally came. And just as the season of moisture began, David heard of Rizpah's faithful vigil and therefore he had the bodies removed, and they were interred in the sepulchre of Kish, father of Saul. Davis also had the remains of Saul and his sons, although the scripture only mentions Jonathan, but there's reason to believe the others were included, brought to the same family tomb so that all the family would have the same final resting place in death. Now, sometime after that, they got into another battle with the Philistines, and... Uh, by jingles, we got another problem here with these, with these uh, anaks. And David's getting to be a pretty uh, mature person. I mean, but he still thinks he's a great fighter and a soldier. So he's right out in there. And did he almost get killed? He really did. And we have, uh, it says David waxed faint. And these sons of Goliath were just as great as their father. And boy, what vengeance to kill the famous King David who'd killed their father. Who saved David's life? Who saved him? Abishai, his nephew, younger brother of Joab, he saved him. Uh, that was kind of interesting. And um, then we had this devastating pestilence resulting from uh, David apparently making the mistake of uh, conducting a military census. What was bad about that? What, why did that displease the Lord? It represented what? A war, aggressive warfare, predatory warfare. And the Lord never justifies war to solve any political or economic problem. When, when will God justify war? There's only one time. When is it? What? Defense. Defensive warfare. And then what duty do we have? We have a duty to God to fight. He said, you're not allowed to allow, you must not allow your children to be destroyed and your lives to be taken. You have a duty to God, the 43rd chapter of Alma says. That is the, the order of God if you are attacked. You're, you're duty bound. Well, it's kind of interesting. This is a very famous incident in Jewish history which you'll want to remember. A sacrifice was made by David to try and, and have the, the pestilence removed that was killing so many people. He says to the Lord, he said, after all, it was my fault. I am the one that conducted the census and and um, I know we had to be punished, but I'm the one that really deserves it, so will you receive of my 
oblations and end the matter. And so on Mount Moriah, where the temple block now stands, it's really Mount Zion, but often called Mount Moriah, and it is the place where Solomon's temple would later be built. David stacked up a whole number of burnt sacrifices on the altar, on the threshing floor of one of the Jebusite heathens, Aaronah. And what happened to those sacrifices? Consumed by fire from heaven. Just as the sacrifices will be when the temple is dedicated. They'll be consumed with fire from heaven. So this is a very sacred spot. Now later, that will become the Holy of Holies of the temple. Now the Mohammedans think that that's where the Dome of the Rock is, and that that thrashing floor of Aranah is actually that projection of rock which comes up above the, the, uh, the main level of the uh, temple square. Whether or not it is, we don't know for sure. It does seem strange, though, that this projection of rock would have been left and all the rest of the floor smooth. Now, um, David knew that he couldn't build a temple, so he spent all of his latter days trying to get the necessary cedar wood and all of the materials necessary to build this wonderful temple. How did he know how to reorganize the, um, the priesthood? He, he organized the priesthood in, so that the, the Aaronic priesthood actually was the tabernacle choir, the tabernacle orchestras. How did he know how to set up all the various quorums of the Aaronic priesthood? Came by revelation. When did he get it? Same time he got the revelation on the temple. The Aaronic priesthood was to be uh, organized in a certain way, and he went ahead and, and organized it. And then um, he, his, the way he organized his military was excellent, because they had no taxes to support the military. How'd they get around that? You'll notice that he, they were one for each tribe. Then he found that wasn't, was inequitable because of, the, of what? Why was that inequitable? Yeah, the tribes are different sizes. So he div divides them up into courses, just like he did the Aaronic priesthood, and then he had them serve. Uh, when uh, the tribe of Ephraim was serving, for example, who paid them their salaries? See, they serve for one month, don't they? Who paid them their salaries? No, it's a missionary call. Who provided their food? They provided their own. I like that for a military operation. Save a lot of taxes that way. And very little waste. Remarkable how economical it's operated under those circumstances. Now today, Israel functions uh, not exactly that way, but they have a very, high, uh, very efficient, high-paid, hardcore professional army. Then everybody else is obligated to serve except Arabs. Arabs don't have to serve. But uh, I was amazed when I got over there to see a lot of Arabs in the army. But they don't have to serve. They'd volunteered. And they're from up around Nazareth. There's 100,000 Arabs around Nazareth. And they just feel that these Arabs that are coming across, these guerrillas and so forth, are just wrong. And they have enlisted in the army. Yes. Yes. Yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, you go to Nazareth and uh, they talk their own language. They study the Koran. They have their representative in the Knesset, the Knesset, the parliament of Israel. Uh, the uh, acting um, president of the Knesset or their parliament this last year was an Arab. So these guerrillas, you see, come across from Jordan, uh, not regular Jordanese, actually. These are um, real fanatical, radical um, terrorists that have been trained by some of the agitational forces. They come across, you see, and they'll come into Nazareth or into any of the Arab camps, and they'll say, cover us up, 
Protect us. And boy, they are arrested immediately by the Arabs. It's a real interesting relationship. Now, these are the 100,000 that didn't go. There were 1,200,000 that fled in 1948 uh, because the Arab leaders told them to flee. Uh, they said, get out of the way because we're going to kill these Jews and drive them into the Mediterranean, and our bullets can't tell an Arab from a Jew. So get out. So it was the Arab leaders that got them to leave. Then the Jews were able to hold, and they not only maintained all their territory, but began to take some of the Arab territory. And then the Arab leaders said, cease fire, stop, 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 stop. That's too much. Then the Arabs who had fled from Palestine, who had kind of been on a three or four week vacation, suddenly found themselves forced into concentration camps by their fellow Arabs who were afraid that they'd get their jobs or would take their land. Or So by the time I got over there in 62, here were all these poor Arabs over in Jordan and down in the Gaza Strip and up in Lebanon and living lower than animals, filth and dirt and poor little kitties running around and the United Nations giving them food furnished almost entirely by the United States. And I kept hearing this story about how terrible the Jews had been to drive these poor people from their homes. And I bought that. I The first time I'd been over, I didn't know what that's what had happened. Then my chauffeur, we had cars in those days rather than buses, and the one that was chauffeuring my particular car spoke pretty good English, and he heard um, our host telling us how terribly they'd been treated and, and how the Jews had robbed them of their land and everything. And so he got me aside at night and he said, uh, Mr. Skousen, I must tell you this is not the truth. He says, I am from over there. For 20 years, my own... No, it wasn't that. It was 17 years, I guess, then it was... Anyway, uh, they have the, my own people have held me in these camps. And he said, they were the ones that got us to leave. He said, if you were driven out perhaps where the war was along the borders, but we were all asked to leave by our own people so we wouldn't get shot. And he said, I, uh, I just wanted you to know the truth because he said, uh, we want to go home eventually. And it's our own people that are preventing it. So the Jews, you see, as soon as the fighting stopped, the Jews said, if the Arab leaders will guarantee to leave our borders where they are and never attack us again, and that we can have peace between us, then all the Arabs come come home. But the Arab League says it's war, war, war. And the Jews said then they can, of course, come home. Be like a fifth column. So then the Jews went to the United Nations and said, if, if, have them set a price on their land. If they're going to continue fighting us like this, have them set a price on their land, we'll try and pay it. So the United Nations set a price on the land, the Arabs wouldn't accept it. Arab leaders. So that's the way the thing has gone on year after year. But I'm always impressed as I, uh, I see some of our Americans confused about the whole refugee situation over there. Once in a while our magazines clarify it and tell it the way I told it in, uh, in Fantastic Victory. Because I report that conversation with that chauffeur. He said, they just recently let me out because I speak English and I can drive a car. He said, I had a big business. I wouldn't take anybody's job. I would make jobs for people if they just turned me loose. It's a sad, sad story. So as I say to my friends over there who are Arabs, you, you have a moral responsibility to these refugees. You first of all drag them out. You now won't let them go back. You will not make peace with Israel. You owe it to them to either let them become citizens of your land and, uh, and buy land and be part of you and uh, integrate with you or 
at least let them go home under circumstances where they will be secure. They listen to me. It doesn't go anywhere, but anyway, it's kind of interesting. Well, very quickly now, um, as David now moved up into his last years, he's nearly 65 now, and um, he's been in the battles all of his, oh, years and years in the battlefield, sleeping on the ground, uh, struggling all day in battle, fighting, probably being wounded on occasion, though it doesn't describe any such uh, wounds. Nevertheless, hand-to-hand -hand combat day and night for years on years. He had a period there about 10 years fighting all the time, at least 10 years. He was in hiding in a refugee for a previous 10 years. This man's had a very hard life. By 65, he's like 85, 90. The catabolical processes now are slowing down. The body is uh, refusing to function. That marvelous physique of his that took on uh, Goliath the giant is now not serving David. And uh, one of the characteristics of uh, this period of life uh, is cold. I want to tell you, it gets cold in Jerusalem, 3,000 feet above sea level. In the winter, they have some snow, and it's cold in Jerusalem. They have no central heating whatever. It's like England when I was there on my mission. I, I never did warm up, even in the summer hardly. That's cold most of the time I was there. But um, anyway, he was cold from age. Even if it had been normal weather, he'd have been cold, old and cold. Oh, they loved him. They remembered the great David of the past. Sure, he'd made a terrible mistake. He's now not popular with his people. His own sons criticize him. He's a fallen man, but he's been a great man, and he made Israel great, and, and uh, they get tribute from the Euphrates to the Nile, and that's all the result of David. So can we make him comfortable in his old age? Well, they're very practical people. They decide that if he had a companion, it'd be nice to keep him warm. So anyway, they decide to have a real lovely girl who'd be willing to be married to the king and be um, his companion uh, during this very difficult period of his life. So they have this beauty contest, so to speak. Everybody looks around for a beautiful girl, and they find one up here near Jezreel, right up there near below the Sea of Galilee. And she is a beautiful girl with the ugliest name in the whole Bible. <laughs> so I always put it in the examination because I know it'll be easy. Even the D students will remember that her name was Abishag. Can you imagine dragging a name around like Abishag? Well, Abishag she was. But she was a lovely girl. She, she accepted the assignment of being married to David. Uh, marriage never consummated, of course, but she did what she could to give him aid and comfort and a little bodily warmth on the cold Jerusalem nights. And um, there was a crown prince running around, and he had an eye for Abishag. Who was he? Adonijah. He doesn't know anything about it here until later, but uh, uh, anyway, he's kind of watching. He didn't miss anything. Now, um, Nathan was apparently trying to motivate David to get him off his deathbed long enough to clarify this whole situation, and that's not easy. So anyway, she goes in, and isn't it kind of interesting? Uh, nobody is there. Nobody's ministering to aged David, not Bathsheba or anybody else. It's it's who? Just Abishag. Everybody else is going on about their business. The old king's dying. This sweet girl's been assigned to be his nurse, and, <clears throat> and she's taking care of him. And So that's that. Life must go on, you know. That's the way things go. And so she asks permission to come in. Was David glad to see her? 
Yes, he was. He was glad to see her. Well, what can I do for you? And she said, well, didn't you say my son could be king? Yes. Well, then um, why isn't he? I don't know, isn't he? And uh, so it, the conversation goes along kind of mildly like that. And so finally Bathsheba said, well, I just wanted to call it to your attention. Then she backs out. And then who comes in? Nathan. He's got this thing all set up. What is this? I didn't know that you were going to have Adonijah king. You didn't even tell me you were going to have Adonijah king. Oh, he really got after him, didn't he? Psychologically, it's really interesting. Did, did David answer him? Boy, he was boiling. That, that's all Nathan had to do to really get his adrenaline flowing. And so he rose up. Who did he call for? Bathsheba. Bring in Bathsheba. And he swore by the heavens this day thy son shall be king. Then he turns to Nathan, gives him instruction, said, get your horn of oil and get my white mule so everybody will know that this is by my assignment. Get my son on that mule and take him through the streets of the city and down to where? Down to Gihon Spring where everybody goes for water. That's probably the marketplace. That's where everybody gathers and anoint him king of Israel. So all of a sudden, of course, there's tremendous racket and noise, longs, live the king, etc., etc. And if Adonijah had his good sense, he'd have left it like it was because um, he doesn't know it, but his life is almost finished uh, because of his bad judgment after David had died. And so David went to, spent the, um, regained his energy sufficiently to hold that great conference in which he, number one, had Solomon anointed king in front of all the people. Number two, announced the building of the temple. Number three, made his contribution and invited all of Israel to likewise make contributions for the temple. And then uh, he just about figured that his service is finished. Where was he buried when he died? Pardon? City of David? Because that's where he was born and raised. Mm-hmm. That is the city of David. He was born and raised there. Then, of course, Saul had him come up to Gibeah, and then later Jerusalem was made the capital. All right, Tuesday's our exam. I'll be all caught up with you by the end of the Thursday assignment. Get all your papers in. Let me have the rolls back, please.